Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. I would like to begin by reading verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Two weeks ago, we looked at this passage beginning back in chapter 8, verse 20. And we saw that here at Christmas, uh, this one that comes into the world is, in fact, the light of the world. He comes into this world that is full of the darkest, darkest, darkest night and gloom of anguish, it says back at the end of chapter uh, 8. And he is the light that comes blazing into this world. And then we read this in verse 6. For to us a child is born. <clears throat> to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. From this, the, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, last Sunday evening, we began to look at verse 6, and we looked at the first two of these names that are given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. Now, I'm not going to review those things, but let me just say in the briefest way, that the name Wonderful Counselor, the word wonderful, is a word that means something that is impossible, something that is too difficult to do. This great one will do the impossible things that no one else can do. And he is a counselor. He is one who has a plan, a purpose. He knows what he is doing when he comes into this world. And then he is the mighty God. That word mighty could very well and appropriately be translated by the word hero. He is a great hero to his people. He delivers us from all of our enemies, and he is God, very God. That was those first two names. I originally was going to try this morning to look at these next two names, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, but I have decided this morning just to look at this next name, the name Everlasting Father from Isaiah 9, 6. Now, of these four names that are given to the Messiah, I would suppose that for most of us, this name, Everlasting Father, is the one that at first glance raises questions in our minds and maybe even confuses us. We are, after all, talking about Christmas. We are talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah coming into the world. And yet here we have this title, Everlasting Father. And so before we look at what this Word, what this title means, let us first uh, begin by looking at what this title, Everlasting Father, does not mean. Now, it's easy to understand why this name would give us pause. When we begin uh, looking here at verse 6, the very first words we read are, For to us a child is born. And immediately there is this disconnect between the idea of child and the idea of father. And with the next statement, it doesn't get any better. It says in the next statement, to us a son is given. And again, there is a, a disconnect between the idea of son and the idea of father. Is the Messiah a child 
and a son, or is he a father? Is Isaiah confused in some way about this person? Well, I assure you that Isaiah is not confused. The scriptures are not confused. The Holy Spirit is not confused about these things. When I was born, I was in the language of verse 6, a child and a son. A few years later, my sister was born, and I became a brother. Some 20-plus years later, I was married, and I became a husband. And not too long after that, my first child was born, and I became a father. And you are not misspeaking about me. If you call me a child or a son or a brother or a husband or a father, I am all of those things. And the name Everlasting Father here in our verse is not a title that has anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of the Trinity or in terms of his relationship with God who is his Father. The very opening statement of this verse, it says that he is a child and that he is a son that is given, is referring to him as the son of God and in reference to him uh, as a member of the Trinity. But this title, Everlasting Father, in our verse refers to his relationship, not to his heavenly father, not to the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, but to his people. In fact, it is also true that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, is our brother. Matthew fifteen twenty. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be for- conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the fourth, firstborn among many brothers. Or Hebrews chapter two verse eleven. He is not ashamed. To call them brothers. He is our brother. He's also our husband. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then it says, this is a mystery that is profound. When I am speaking, Paul says, of husbands and wives, I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. His church is his bride, Christ is the husband of his church. And so he has that relationship with us as well. It's referred to several times in Revelation chapter 21 where the church is called his bride and the wife of the Lamb. Let me make a brief observation here before we start to answer the question, what does this term everlasting father mean? The observation is this, the relationship between Christ and his church is rich and multidimensional and deep and complex. And it is more that, that, that can be portrayed in any one relationship. It includes the, all the things that come to our minds when we say brother or when we say husband or when we say father. There are many other things like king and shepherd and priest and prophet that are used to describe this relationship uh, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And may I suggest that any time we see one of these relationships, brother, father, husband, when we see it uh, before us in a way that seems good and righteous and holy, we ought to give thanks to Christ 
And we ought to see Christ in those relationships. Do you see someone who is a good brother? Christ is that and more. Do you have, by the grace of God, a good father? Christ is that and more. Do you have a good husband? Christ is that and more. And whenever we see these things done well, by the grace of God, and surely if they are done well, it is by God's grace, then we should thank God for these things and we should see Christ in those things. It is Christ being preached to us in these various ways. Now back in our text in Isaiah, this name Everlasting Father is not a Trinitarian statement. It speaks of some way in which Christ relates to the people of God, His church. I want to suggest to you, and I'm sure there are other ways, but I want to suggest to you this morning four ways that we can understand this name, Everlasting Father. Now the first way that we can think about the Messiah in terms of Him being our Father or Him being the Everlasting Father is in the sense that He is the founder of our faith and of the Christian religion. We use this kind of language all the time. Let me give you some examples. If I say George Washington, one of the things that probably first pop in your mind is that he is what? He is the father of our nation. Gandhi was called the father of India. Hippocrates, the father of medicine. A name you may not know, but William Osler was a a Canadian physician, and he was one of the four founding professors at John Hopkins, and we know the name John Hopkins, we related that to medicine, and he was known as the father of modern medicine. Florence Nightingale, the mother of modern nursing. If I say the name Oppenheimer, many of you will immediately think of that he was the father of the atomic bomb. Karl Marx the father of socialism, or sometimes called the father of, of uh, communism. Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations, is called the father of capitalism. We call those early leaders of our nation the founding fathers. Early men in the very first two generations of the church, like Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, are called apostolic fathers, and those of the next generation after them are called the church fathers. We use the term father and mother in this way all the time. We are saying that these people are founders. They are pioneers. They laid the foundation in these various ways. And the scriptures are clear that we should think about Christ in this way. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.19, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. 1 Peter 2.6, where it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In Hebrews 2.10 and in Hebrews 12.2, our Lord Jesus Christ is called the author of their salvation or the author and perfecter 
of faith. If you read, if you read those verses in the ESV, that, that word author is translated founder, or in the NIV, it is translated pioneer. And that is precisely the point that I'm trying to make. Jesus Christ is the foundation of everything we believe and know. He is the father of our faith and of our hope. He is the founder, the pioneer of everything that we are as Christians. And know that he is called everlasting father. It's certainly obvious that Christ is central to the New Testament and its message, but I hope that you are equally convinced that Christ is at the center of the Old Testament as well. Paul says that if we read the Old Testament without understanding that it is about Christ, that we are reading with a veil over our eyes, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Peter tells us that when the prophets spoke about the Messiah, like these words that we're reading in Isaiah, that it was the Spirit of Christ that was speaking to the prophets. Christ is God's prophet to his church in every age. From before the world was made, he was the word of God and the foundation of grace and truth. So it has ever been, so it will ever be. He is the everlasting father of our faith. Now, our second way in which we can understand this term everlasting father is this. The Messiah is our father in the sense that he is the source of our spiritual life, and he stands at the head as a representative of his people. Let me explain what I mean by this. When we think about our physical life, we trace the life that we have in our physical bodies back to our father, Adam. We are the sons and daughters of Adam. Adam is the source of our life, and also as our father, he stood at the head of our race, and he represented our race. The scriptures tell us that when Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam died, we died. We read about that in Romans chapter 5. And Paul says something very interesting in Romans chapter 5. After saying that we all die in Adam, who is our father... We read these words at the end of, of verse 14. It says that Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam, our father, is a type, a symbol, a picture, a shadow of Christ who was to come later. Adam, our father, is a type of Christ, our father. Adam, our father, is a symbol of Christ, our father. Adam, our father, is a picture of Christ, our father. And we read in Romans chapter 5, and verse 17, For if, because of one man's trespass, referring to Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so just as physical life came, comes to all of us through Adam, so it is that our spiritual life, if we are in fact alive spiritually, has its source and its root in our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. When I look at my frail, fleeting, physical life, the life that I have through natural birth and natural generation, and I ask, where did this come from? I look back and I trace it directly to my father, 
Adam. And when I look at my spiritual life, the life that I have through the new birth, through regeneration, I look back and I trace it directly to my Father Christ. If you live physically, if you physically are alive, Adam is most assuredly your father. And if you live spiritually, if you are spiritually alive, then Christ is most assuredly your father. Paul in 1 Corinthians continuing to draw this parallel between life in Adam and life in Christ says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He goes on to say later in this chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 45 and following, Thus it is written, The first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam, referring to Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man, referring to Adam, was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man, referring to Christ, is the man from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We bear the image of Adam, our father. And if we are Christians, we will bear the image of Christ, who is our father. That there is one difference between the first and last Adam, and it is a tremendous difference. And it is that we have life through Adam, but we die because of Adam and in Adam. But in our Lord Jesus Christ, it only says that we have life. There is no death to those that live in Christ. He is the everlasting Father, and the life that we have as His children is everlasting life. He's an everlasting Father. He has everlasting children. It is eternal life that we receive from Him. He's called... Uh, in other places in the scriptures, the prince of life. Now, there's a third way in which the Messiah uh, is our father. In this, and it is in the sense that he exercises a paternal authority and care towards us. The rule of Messiah will be a fatherly rule. Now, our verse back in Isaiah says that the government will be on his shoulders, that that the increase of his government will know no end, that he will establish it and uphold it from this time forth and forevermore. But with these words, everlasting father, we are to understand that this rule will be like that of a father over his children, and it will be for our good and for our well-being. The word father is sometimes used in the Old Testament to refer to the benevolent, to benevolent human rulers. Just one example, Genesis 45, 8. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. Joseph says this, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He, God, has made me, Joseph, to be a father to Pharaoh, and a lord to all his house, and a ruler over the land of Egypt. And in this verse, the terms father, 
and Lord and ruler are all synonyms referring to the same activity, Joseph ruling in the land of Egypt. In Isaiah in chapter 22, uh, verse 21, uh, God is speaking about one that he is going to make king. And he says of this one, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. In Isaiah chapter 8, the Messiah himself is speaking. And he makes reference to the children whom the Lord has given me. That verse is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2 in verses 13 and 14 as it talks there about the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it says there, Behold, I and the children God has given me, quoting from Isaiah 8. And then it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Christ is a father to his children, and he is a father to them forever and ever. Having taken up the commitment to paternal care of his people, he is not going to abandon that. There is no need for us to fear that this father will ever leave home. There is no need for fear that somewhere along the line, this father will abandon his family and his responsibilities. He is an everlasting father. He will never throw us out. He will never abandon us. He will never relinquish his responsibilities. He will never go back on his promises. If you would, I would like for you to turn with me to one passage of Scripture, and it is Psalm 103. And I would like for us to look at a few things in this psalm that I would suggest tell us about this fatherly rule that Christ has for his people and in his church. Let me draw your attention first to verse 13, where we read this. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, this is quite an extraordinary statement. I suggest to you that there is a special compassion, a special warmth, a special patience and tolerance, a special connection, a special emotion that you have for your children that you don't have for anyone else's children. That there's a special place for your own child. Every father views his own children in a way that he does not view anyone else's children. You cannot, no matter how hard you may try, view someone else's children in exactly the same way that you view your own. You may really love them. You may really care for them. You may really serve them. But there is a a unique dimension to the fatherhood that cannot be duplicated with anyone that is not your own child. I think that you know that that's true. Psalm 103 verse 13 that we just read says that as a father shows compassion towards his own children, that special relationship that we have that can't be duplicated any way else and anywhere else, That is the way that God has special regard to each one of those that are His own. It is an extraordinary statement. 
The word compassion is a word that means to love deeply with tender affection. One Hebrew lexicon speaking of this word says that it literally means to be soft and it means to cherish and to have a a soothing and a gentle emotion of the mind towards another. That special grace that God gives us toward our own children is is exactly the way that Christ feels towards you if you are a Christian. Do you feel an almost unexplainable, tender pity and empathy for your precious child? So it is with the Lord Jesus Christ for each of His children. Now I want us to look at three ways in Psalm 103 that we can see the Messiah being a father to His people forever. What exactly does that look like? Let me suggest three ways from this psalm. The first is that He forgives completely. Look at verse 3 where we read, who forgives all your iniquity. And then in verse 4, it says, who redeems your life from the pit. And then down in verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And then in verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Do the sins of His people mess everything up? Do my sins and your sins get right in the middle of of everything and threaten and challenge the love that God has for us in Christ? And the answer is no. He removes them as far as the east is from the west and He keeps on loving us with a great personal, intimate, fatherly love. We are forgiven completely. Now don't misunderstand and think that God just doesn't care about our sin or that He just looks the other way or that He just winks at our sin with a little smile on His face. We should never think about God in in that way. In fact, our text back in Isaiah 9, 6 says that whatever He does, He does it in such a way that it will establish and uphold justice, and righteousness. And dear ones, He only has this gracious disposition toward the sin of those who are His children by faith. This same one who is our tender father is also the one who redeems us from the pit, verse 4 says. And let me ask you, have you ever come to realize that you are at the very bottom of a deep, dark moral and legal and spiritual pit and that you have no way to get out. You have no resources to use to bring about an escape. It is this Messiah and only this Messiah who can redeem your life and deliver you. The question is, is do you believe in Him? And if not, then what do you believe in? Do you think that hard work and material success is going to make things work out all right in the end? Do you think that thinking deep philosophical thoughts and having a good philosophy of life is going to make things right in the end, that it will save you in the end? Do you believe in yourself? Each one of us, needs to be saved from our own sins, which we can never undo 
and which we can never make right. Each one of us needs to be saved from our weakness and our helplessness. We need to be saved from our dark, twisted, wrong way of thinking and and way of looking at this world. We need to be saved, I would suggest, from ourselves. And this one who is the everlasting Father and the Christ of God is our hope and our salvation. I urge you to run to this one who forgives his children completely, who forgives all of their iniquities, who does not deal with them according to their sin, who does not repay them what they deserve, who does not let sin wreck his fatherly love, but rather he removes it far, far away from them. Such is the forgiving fatherly love of Christ. And if you're not a Christian, this is what you need more than your next breath, the love of God in Christ Jesus. Secondly, from this psalm, we see another way uh, that we can see this fatherly love, and it is that he knows us completely. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, it says, He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now, the most basic questions of life are things like, Where did I come from? What is my purpose? Where am I going? This everlasting Father says to us, I know exactly who you are. I know how you were made, how you were formed. I know where you came from. I know where you're going. I know you through and through. In Psalm 139, David speaks along these same lines, beginning in verse 13 when he says this. Speaking of God, he says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was, not, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. Now, why does this matter? When we we read words like this, and if we understand them, and if we believe them, then we know that to our God, we are not just a number. We are not just a cookie-cutter person stamped out by some kind of cosmic machine that is producing billions and billions of little people that are just going to be herded along through the ages, lost in the great masses of humanity. These verses tell us exactly the opposite of that. They tell us that each one of us is individually and uniquely and carefully made, that each one of us is the object of Christ's special care and attention. I'm not just a number. You are not just a number. I have a Father who knows my name, who knows everything about me, even down to the number of hairs on my head. Even before time began, He knew me. And I'm not worthless, and neither are you, because we have a Father who knows us and who loves us. My life is not meaningless 
because my Father has a place for me in His family. Thirdly, from Psalm 103, He loves us completely. At the end of verse 8, we, it, says of our, it says of our Father that He is abounding in steadfast love. Abounding is a big word. It means great or much or more. It means exceeding. Our God is full of love for us and He loves us more and more and more. And then look at verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. How far is it from here to heaven? That is how vast the love of this Father is for us. We sang about it just a few minutes ago. Verse 17 says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Here we come back to the fact that He is our everlasting Father. His love is forever and forever and forever worlds without end. Now there is a fourth way, and I want to just mention it briefly. There's a fourth way that we can understand the Messiah is Father. And it is in the sense that He is the Father of eternity. Many theologians and commentators point out that this term, everlasting Father, can be translated and understood as the Father of eternity. Let me read this quotation to you uh, from Charles Spurgeon. He says, The term, Father of eternity, implies that Jesus is preeminently eternal. That to Him, beyond and above all others, eternity may be ascribed. No language can more forcibly convey to our minds the eternity of our Lord Jesus Christ than this title, Father of Eternity. Nay, without straining the language, I may say that not only is eternity ascribed to Christ, but He is here declared to be the parent of it. Imagination cannot grasp this, for eternity is a thing beyond us. Yet if eternity could seem to be a thing which can, which can have no parent, be it remembered that Jesus is so surely and essentially eternal that He is here pictured as the source and Father of eternity. Jesus is not the child of eternity, but the Father of it. Eternity did not bring Him forth from its mighty bowels, but He brought forth eternity. Independent, self-sustained, Uncreated, eternal existence is with Jesus, our Lord and God. End quote. Is it not a great comfort to know that time and history, the past and the future, my life and your life are in the hand of Christ, who is the Father of eternity? Charles Spurgeon said, quoting him again, If thou hast entered into this relationship so as to be in union with Christ and to be covered with the skirts of His garment. Thou art His child and thou shalt be forever. There is no unfathering Christ and there is no unchilding us. He is an everlasting Father to those who trust in Him and He never does at any one moment cease to be Father to anyone of these. This morning you may have come here in trouble, but Christ is still your Father. 
This day you may be much depressed in spirit and full of doubts and fears, but a true father never ceases, if he be a father, to exercise his kindness to a child, nor does Jesus cease to love and pity you. He will help you. Go to him, and you shall find that loving friend to be as tender as in the days of his flesh. End quote. In our first glance, we might ask, how can this name, Everlasting Father, be applied to our Lord Jesus Christ? I hope that you will agree that it is a, an appropriate and a wonderful name for Him. It is, we're in the Christmas season now, and we are to be thinking much about the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we think of Him? How should we think of Him? Well, I think that we should think of him in this way. And Isaiah tells us that this is what we should call him. This is how we should think about him. He is the wonderful counselor who has a purpose and a plan and who does the impossible things that no one else can do. He is our mighty hero and our God. He is our foundation. He is our life. He is our tender father forever and forever. And that is how we should think about our Lord Jesus Christ, in these days of Christmas. May God help us to think about him in this way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we cannot help but marvel at the richness of these names and even more, Lord, of the richness of the one that these names describe. I pray, Lord, that we would stand in awe of our Lord Jesus Christ that you would, Lord, bless us throughout the days of Christmas uh, to have him much on our mind and that you would give us an occasion to talk with other people about this one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray, Lord, that you would cause every one of us to believe in him. If there's any that's not a Christian, Lord, I pray that today you would draw them to this one who is wonderful, who is mighty, who is everlasting and powerful to save. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.